This is a 50-year-old white female who presented with kind of vague symptoms of fatigue. She was active. She's an arts teacher in a high school setting, has three young children, had stopped menstruating the year before she presented as part of her family doctor evaluating her. He found a hemoglobin of 7.5 grams and an MCV of 72 and a ferritin level of 7. She was unaware of any site of bleeding. She was no knowledge of any hematuria, hematokesia, etc. No weight loss, no pain anywhere. Goes for her GI evaluation and colonoscopy does have a sequel lesion. Goes for her laparotomy and has a right hemicolectomy. And 25 lymph nodes were evaluated. All are negative for metastatic disease. The cancer had penetrated through the muscularis and involved the pericolonic fat, but there was no adhesions or distant disease at all. She has, as I mentioned, three small children, and she comes into the office and emphatically states she will do anything to have any improvement in her overall survivalship, that she wants to be alive when her grandchildren are born, but she also is concerned about being an arts teacher, that she has fine motor activity that she wants to maintain. So before you get into what the decision was, again, was she somebody out there trying to get a lot of information? She was very knowledgeable, but she did not come in with regimens or recommendations. She was very cooperative, would do anything that you asked her to do. So Neil, this woman says, what's my chance I'm going to have a recurrence without therapy? And how will that be affected by various options? So her chance of being free of disease without therapy may be as high as 80%. So she has a very good prognosis. You didn't mention any adverse prognostic features. In fact, she had 25 lymph nodes resected, which is a good number, and none of them were involved. So among stage two patients, she's among the best in terms of prognosis. I'd say at the outset, I'd really like to see her enroll in the intergroup study, ECOG 5202, where patients' tumors are assessed for microsatellite instability and 18Q, loss of heterozygosity, and their risk strategy based on that. And patients who are identified as being at low risk of recurrence will then just get observed on that study and the others will get chemotherapy. And that's one way to solve the conundrum of what do I do with this patient because obviously the benefit, if you take an unselected population, the benefit of adjuvant therapy is small. Now, Neil asked me, what is the benefit? It's probably no more than a few percent regardless of what you give her, whether it be a fluoroprimidine alone or Folfox. Certainly, Folfox is better than 5-FU-Leucovorin in terms of disease-free survival. It's not nothing, but it's marginal in the big scheme of things. It's only a few percent. And so it really does boil down to a discussion of goals, values, and what the side effects that will impact life now and down the road will be. And as survey data have suggested, and Neil has actually obtained some of these data, there are some patients for whom what we might consider an extremely small potential benefit, like 1%, would take a very aggressive approach with potential for long-term toxicity. And there are others for whom a much greater potential benefit is required to take the therapy. And one of the things that has made this discussion somewhat easier for me is that you have this middle-of-the-road option. You have Folfox on one side, nothing on the other side, and there's the fluoroprimidine alone as a middle-of-the-road option, and it could be capecitabine. And I find in my discussions with patients who 
don't have a feature that denotes high risk, like only a few lymph nodes or lymphovascular invasion or obstruction or something that makes it a done deal. I'm, I'm going to offer you Folfox. Many times those patients will say, well, I'd really like to do something and I'd like that something to not have potential for long-term toxicity, that is neurotoxicity. So let's do capecitabine. And that's sort of a way out for many people in this discussion, or a way in, depending on how you look at it. It's interesting, as we talked about this this morning, and these controversial issues, it's great to get different people's opinion. When you use fluoroperimidine monotherapy, to what extent is it capecitabine? To what extent, if any, is it IV5-FU right now? I offer capecitabine for people that are selecting monotherapy in general, unless there's some reason why they can't do capecitabine. And that's based on the randomized study showing that capecitabine's at least as good in the adjuvant setting as 5-FU. And how do you approach the dose? The studies have used 2,500 per square meter per day in divided doses. I start with that dose in general with the understanding that many people in my practice in North America can't tolerate that dose that was derived from studies in Europe, but it is the dose that's shown benefit. So I tend to err on the side of starting high and then modifying my dose, because typically the toxicity that's going to cause a dose modification is not a life-threatening toxicity. It might be hand-foot syndrome or diarrhea, which can be life-threatening, but if you educate the patient appropriately to contact you at the first sign of diarrhea and not continue taking the pills, you can usually safely bail out in time before it is a life-threatening problem. So I start at the standard, what I consider to be the standard dose, and then go down. Steve, I'm curious about your perspective as a surgeon looking out at the way oncologists manage adjuvant therapy, and particularly comparing breast and colon cancer. A breast cancer patient with a 20% chance of recurrence for sure is going to see an oncologist, almost for sure is going to get chemotherapy. Pretty much every patient with invasive breast cancer is going to at least talk to an oncologist. Do you think that kind of approach for stage 2 disease makes sense for colon cancer, essentially offer all patients a consult with a med-onc? Well, I think more and more patients are interested in that, and we certainly offer that option to all of our patients. You know, when we get a PATH report back that essentially shows a T2 or T3 tumor and node negative, we'll talk to the patient about what is known about prognostic indicators. Clearly, as Neil mentioned, if they have any of the negative factors, lymphovascular invasion, if they are coming from the outside for a consultation and they haven't had an adequate lymphadenectomy, we'll then talk about probably we would err on the side of being aggressive. There's another factor that didn't get mentioned here that is a real issue, which is that my perception is that oftentimes patients will be treated differently depending upon their age. Here, we had a lot of emotional overlay offered. We've got a patient coming in, 50, she's got kids, she wants to see her grandkids, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's a lot of pressure that's placed on the oncologist in that scenario. So how much that plays in and how an individual reacts to that, I think, is a fascinating process because we've certainly seen different recommendations based on the age and overall health status of a patient. So that is something that you can't factor in with any study, and it's always been a fascinating issue for me. 
It is fascinating. In our patterns of care studies, we clearly see that as age goes up, the use of fluoropyrinine monotherapy clearly increases. But Neil, you know, when you think about what you just talked about, which again, kind of reminds me of the breast cancer approach, node negative, don't get a taxane, node positive, high risk, node negative, do add a taxane. I don't know that those kinds of numbers don't make sense for a 50 or 60 year old in terms of using or offering fluoroperinine monotherapy because the absolute increase by adding oxalate is not going to be that great even for a 50 or 60 year old. So the implication being that the decision shouldn't matter that much based on age? You know, other than competing causes of mortality when you get to the 70s or 80s. No, I agree with you. I mean, I think that... I mean, do you use that approach in younger patients? No, I don't. I mean, I offer the same option to patients regardless of age. And it's often the patient, the older patient, who is less willing to accept toxicity, additional toxicity, that makes the decision in favor of the less aggressive regimen, if you will. So no, I don't think we should be biasing our recommendations based on age. That said, we should talk a little bit about what are the data with regard to age and toxicity in terms of colon cancer therapy. And at this year's ASCO meeting, Dan Sargent presented some data with regard to the toxicity of Fulfox across age groups in patients on clinical trials and concluded from those that Fulfox can be safely administered to people of all ages based on this analysis where there were some toxicities that seemed to be a little more in the older individuals and older was defined as greater than 70, I believe, or 75. But you have to keep in mind the caveat that there were very few octogenarians and nonagenarians on these studies that form the basis for these types of analyses, which we've seen over time. I do have this sense, and you guys have experience in this, that the old, old 80s, 90s may be the most vigorous individual, but can sometimes simply fall apart when you give them chemotherapy in an unexpected way based on their performance status, their organ function, those things that are criteria for entry into clinical trials. So I have to admit that not based on specific data in these extremely old individuals, but I do have some concern in the oldest patients about added toxicity. I offer the same therapies to everybody, but in my discussion with the patient, I do raise the possibility of greater sensitivity to side effects in a very old person. Can you follow up with what happened with this patient? Yeah, we did have the 1% discussion about if this treatment provided you an additional 1% benefit, would you take it? And she vigorously agreed that she wanted the most aggressive therapy, so she got full FOX6. At the eighth cycle, we were experiencing neuropathy. We did a dose reduction. By the ninth cycle, it was still neuropathy. We discontinued oxaliplatin. That was completed by March of this year and July this year. Still has some little neuropathy, but she thinks she'll be able to return to school in September without any major problems. And so we're in the watching phase. I'm curious, Steve, what you think the perception of surgeons are, particularly general surgeons who are sending patients with breast cancer and lung cancer, et cetera, whether adjuvant therapy for colon cancer kind of gets lumped into that or whether they're aware that there's kind of a difference in what people go through. Well, I think there is an awareness now. I mean, there's been a marked shift in the educational processes, even at the level of the American College of Surgeons. Back when I took my oral boards, for example, we were all expected to be well-versed and be able to spit out the doses of any kind of drug you would use, inotropes, you know, agents for patients who were septic. You were expected to be able to manage critically ill patients. 
Not long after that, we started adding adjuvant therapy questions for breast cancer and colon cancer and were met with blank stares by these poor kids taking the exam. And we realized we were not teaching general surgeons the importance of adjuvant therapy. And again, particularly in this day and age where we frequently teach an operation isn't the correct first treatment, you may want to go on to chemotherapy first or chemoradiation if it's a rectal cancer. We're really making an emphasis in treating patients in sort of the whole spectrum of disease so that surgeons who are now in training and young surgeons are well-versed in at least the common chemotherapeutic regimens for node-positive colon and breast cancer. Again, the kind of high-risk patients with stage 2 disease who were appropriate because what happens, and again, the fellows who come into MD Anderson quickly learn this, they must become conversant in the language of medical oncologists because the patient after an operation before they ever see a medical oncologist will ask their surgeon do you think i need chemotherapy and what will the chemotherapy be and that's one of the things that i get most remarks about from our new fellows is wow i've never seen so much of patients and the fact that you guys actually know the answers to those questions so we train all of the young surgeons working with us that they really need to understand what they're asking their patients to go through. While we're not administering the drug, we know that they are going to be coming to us asking questions. So just like Neil was saying, we go over, well, this is what you'll hear about in terms of side effects. They'll talk to you about this. They'll mention this. So that they've already kind of prepped it. We look at our role as assisting the medical oncologist so the patients have already heard about some of these side effects. And so what Neil didn't give us proper credit for as surgeons is we make his life easier. Dr. Glenn? I think the surgical point is really important because it's easy to end up backpedaling when the patient comes in, especially the breast cancer patient, and says, I think I only need to take tamoxifen. The surgeon told me I might just need a pill therapy. And so the surgeon setting the stage makes it much easier because you've brought the patient through a surgical procedure, they're back on their feet, and it really makes it easy. And the other thing, I think I use adjuvant online a lot with patients, and the age and the alopecia thing is huge, that it's the 80-year-old patient who looks at a 5% difference in the possibility of a pump who says, forget it. You've got to treat 100 people to get five people that's going to make a difference. I'm not taking a pump. I find that a very common. That's interesting. You use adjuvant online for colon also? I have, yeah. Because we know it's used extensively in breast. Steve? When I asked Neil his opinion about the calcium-magnesium infusion, does he use it? I know there's a study that's ongoing trying to assess that. And if you do use it, do you use it in the adjuvant setting or only in the metastatic setting? Yeah, I virtually never use it. The data that have been presented for calcium and magnesium were basically related to acute toxicity. That tends to not be dose-limiting except in a rare circumstance, and that would be the case where I'd consider it. But I'm not routinely using it, and I do eagerly await the results of randomized studies. One final question before we go on to Dr. Tal's case. Just, again, this issue, you mentioned alopecia, and people are concerned about it. What about the issue of rash? We're starting to see trials looking at EGFR inhibitors in the adjuvant setting. How do you think people are going to respond to that cosmetic issue as adjuvant therapy, Neil? I think that cosmetic issues are important. I think that is a wild card. The fact is, when using the EGFR inhibitors in patients with metastatic disease, they're not on them that long. And the patients who are on for a long time are having a great benefit. So it's very tangible what your benefit is at the cost of having this skin rash. The people I've had who have been intolerant of skin rash in the metastatic setting 
tend to be very public people with a real reason to have a problem with their appearance. So one person was a pastor at a church, and this was a big problem for him. He was in the public eye all the time. Another person was a glamorous young woman, and she remarked that she couldn't go out in public because of her skin rash. And it's a very small subset of patients who I've found have been intolerant because of appearance, not symptoms, but appearance with cetuximab or panitumumab in the metastatic disease setting. I do think that the calculus may be a little different in the adjuvant setting, and this remains to be seen. In the adjuvant setting, you are free of disease, at least grossly free of disease. And the concern for risk and your immediate mortality in terms of that equation may just not be there for people as much as with metastatic disease. So I think that's a good question and we won't know until a long time from now because the bottom line is patients getting it now in the adjuvant setting are on clinical trials and there might be a greater motivation and commitment to stay on therapy than once a drug is approved. Have you had patients receiving cetuximab or panitumab on adjuvant trials, and how did they respond to the rash? My experience is too small at this point to really generalize. Okay. Dr. Tao? 